calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Realm presents Bullet Catcher, Season 3. Episode 8. Half Moon. We keep moving until we're far enough from Jalapa to feel safe that the gunslingers aren't following us, at least for now. We're heading toward the coast, to where Cass last reckoned a man named Daniel, another of her old bullet catcher allies, was hiding out in a fishing village called Half Moon at the tip of a peninsula reaching far out into the ocean. I've never seen the coast, never touched the ocean. There's a part of me that doesn't believe such a thing as an ocean exists. How can there possibly be that much water? It seems a cruel trick that drinking it'll make you sick. With Lena on board, along with her cassock-wearing friend, I have half a mind to ask her how any god could make such a thing. But she's agreed to teach me, so I don't want to risk angering her. And anyway, for a priest, she doesn't seem especially pious. For now, I'll ask those questions of the creature. Sometimes when I ask it questions, it stares at me in a way that feels like an answer as truthful and wise as any Lobo might once have offered me. Sometimes I wonder if the creature isn't Lobo come back from the dead. Often, I'll bring it close to my face and take a deep breath. And sometimes I can convince myself that it smells like Lobo like water, like heat, and long silences. But most of the time, the creature just smells like the creature. If it smelled like a color, that color would be pink, bright and new and beautiful. What's the ocean like, Cass? Nico asks, staring out the window. Between us, he's always been the curious one. Sometimes when we were at the orphanage together, he would go on asking questions so much that the nuns thought he was making fun of them, and they'd wrap his knuckles and drag him out of class by the hair. Me? I'd just as soon see the ocean for myself before forming any opinion about it. Or I'd look it up in a book and read all about it, bury the information away in the back of my mind somewhere, and hardly ever think about it again. But that's what happens when you're mostly busy just trying to stay alive. 
saps the wonder from you. It's a terrible thing, the ocean, Cass says. It goes on and on, past the horizon, a slate-gray desert full of storms. I heard there is another land, somewhere on the other side. Could be, Cass says. As far as I know, it just goes on and on and never ends. Everything ends, Lena says. That's an awful dark way of looking at things, Nico says. Lena laughs. I disagree. Knowledge of the end is what makes life worth living. When you're in pain, is it not a comfort to know that the pain is temporary? Nico leans forward in his seat. What about God? Surely you must believe God is never-ending. She shrugs. How should I know? On the third day from Jalapa, the air grows heavy and wet. When I pull back the wagon curtains, I'm met by a sight unlike any I've seen before. Stretching out in every direction, the ground is covered in white crystals like snow, though the day is as hot as any other. Holding the creature up so I can see, we gaze out the window in astonishment. Here and there, twisted black trees grow up from between cracks in the earth, their spindly branches reaching as though in desperation toward the sky. It's a salt flat, says Cass. I've heard it said that this whole area used to be a giant lake, gone now. And now that she's said it, I can taste the salt on my tongue. It fills the air like the smog that hangs over a factory town. In the distance, I spot a low rise in the land, lifting up to form a sort of bowl through which we drive our wagon, cutting two dark clefts in the ground behind us. It'll be another day and night crossing the salt flat, and then we'll nearly be there, Cass says. Where's Lena? I ask. Up in the driver's seat with her gentleman, Nico says. That word, gentleman, hangs in the air. What? He says, shooting me a look. Gentlemen? I echo, shrugging my shoulders. Nico sighs. I'm just missing my gentleman, I suppose. I didn't get much of a chance to get to know Rainer before I left Watertown. He seemed like an okay guy. Exactly Nico's type. Confident, smart, and pretty as all get out. I hadn't trusted him, but maybe that's because I couldn't stop picturing Cloak whenever Nico and Rainer got close. The wagon rumbles along at an easy pace. Leaving the creature in Nico's care, I push open the door, climb out on the rail, and make my way up to the driver's seat, holding a kerchief over my mouth against the cloud of salt kicked up by the wagon wheels. Up atop the wagon, Lena and the man in the cassock sit, driving the horses. Lena chats away happily about something while the man in the cassock sits in stony silence, his mouth covered by a bandana, his eyes grim focused on a point on the horizon where the white earth meets the sky. When Lena sees me, she pulls down her bandana to give me a smile. She offers me her hand and pulls me up onto the bench to sit beside her. If you're looking for some fresh air, you're not going to find it up here, she says. Tell me more about the man we'll be looking for in Half Moon. Daniel? He's a good man. A healer. A storyteller. Doesn't sound like he's much of a fighter. Lena stares straight ahead. He was enough of one to survive the war. And then she turns and fixes me with a serious look. But in the years since last I saw him, it's not his fighting skill that I wish to recall, but the tales he'd tell us to keep up our spirits, or to cheer us after another defeat. It's the nights he'd stay up holding a dying man's hand, 
so he'd know he wasn't alone. I've known plenty of people willing to deal out death to perfect strangers and never so much as blink an eye. But only a few have the strength to stay up all night with death, to speak to it and offer it comfort. That's a true measure of a person's strength. Tonight, when we stop for camp, I'd appreciate it if you showed me some of your moves. You're awfully eager. I'm... rusty. I look down at my bandaged hand. I think of the creature. Back in Gravesend, I'd usually carry it around in its basket. I'd point the creature at things on the shelves when I went down to the general store. I'd rest the basket on the stool beside me at the saloon. I'd point it at children and dogs and the stars overhead and tell the creature everything I knew about those things. And if there was something I didn't know, we'd retreat to our cabin and look it up in the big encyclopedia I bought off a traveling salesman, which always sat open to this or that on my little writing desk. Its pages stained with dry candle wax from me reciting passages about strange animals and scientific miracles and strange trivia to the creature late into the night, like bedtime stories. Now, since leaving Gravesend, hardly an hour has gone by when I couldn't feel the creature's heart beating against my own, or feel its tiny warm body against mine. Sitting up here in the wind, with the salt air stinging my eyes, I feel the lack of the creature against my body like a phantom limb, though it's only back in the wagon. And you worry that, if and when it comes to it, you won't have the strength to protect your little one, Lena says, reading my face. I've never known fear like what I felt yesterday, when I thought I had failed the creature, when I thought, when I thought, it hurts to squeeze out the words, when I thought the creature had been killed. Lena nods. Lobo must have seen something brilliant in you to have trained you. I see it too. We stop beneath the thin shade of a tall, water-starved tree, standing on a small circular rise in the flats that at one time must have been an island. Everyone lounges around the fire, eating a dinner prepared by the cassock-wearing man. Nico balances the creature on his knee, shoveling small spoonfuls of watery potato mash into its mouth. It gurgles and claps its hands, and Nico laughs at his newfound ability to be an uncle. Lena and I walk a good distance from the campsite. The moon hangs overhead, full and bright, turning the salt flat a metallic gray. If I were to wake from a long sleep and suddenly find myself in a place like this, I might think myself on the surface of the moon, silver and barren and strangely beautiful. Okay, Lena says, let's go through the basics. Show me the starting forms. Starting forms? I haven't had to do those in ages. Exactly. She says, I'm betting you got good enough to where you didn't have to think about the forms anymore. You didn't have to think at all. You could feel the path of the bullets. You could predict their endpoints and move your hands and body to catch and deflect them. But now you're out of practice. Your body can't remember how to move, so you're thinking too much. Only you can't remember exactly how it's all supposed to go. It makes you slow, vulnerable. I remember it all just fine. Good. Then show me. One by one, I go through the forms. It feels awkward and boring, just like when I was doing them for the first time. And with each one, Lena stands there, a few feet away, silently judging my technique. By the time I'm finished, I'm covered in sweat, 
The salt sticks to my skin, itching and stinging. Well, that wasn't very good at all, was it? Excuse me? Your technique is sloppy. And some of your forms are so far off the mark, I wonder if you ever learned them in the first place. Of all the teachers I've had, I thought you'd be the nice one. There's no such thing as nice when it comes to discipline. You either have it or you don't. She gives me a moment to finish catching my breath, and then she says, So, are you ready to go again? I don't say anything, instead assuming the position of the first form. She circles around me, studying my stance. She taps my left foot with the toe of her boot, telling me to widen my stance. She pokes me in the ribs because my arms are out of position. Then she steps back and studies me. Better, she says. I relax and start to move into the second form. What do you think you're doing? She asks. I was just, I'm your teacher. You don't just do anything unless I tell you so. Understand? Yes, ma'am. Ma'am, I like that. Now, back into the first form. I want you to hold it until I say so. Got it? Yes, ma'am. I take the position again. She studies me and then nods her approval. I hate this. My body hurts, my eyes sting. I'm tired from a long day of traveling and my belly is empty. All I want to do is curl up next to the creature to breathe in deep the smell of its dark, curly hair and go to sleep. And yet, there is a part of me that missed all this. Missed the pain of it, the effort. And as the night rolls on and Lena barks orders at me, I hardly hear her voice at all. Instead, it's Lobo that I hear. And it keeps me going till dawn. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. I catch an hour of sleep, maybe, before Nico shakes me awake and wafts a plate of fried eggs and ham underneath my nose. It's a struggle to sit up. My arms are jelly. I can't feel my stomach. My legs feel as if they've been buried in sand. Nico cradles the creature in the nook of his arms. I watch him bouncing it up and down, lifting it high over his head and spinning around. 
It took him a while, but I think he's fallen in love with the creature. I think it gives him the chance to be a big brother again, to look after someone small and defenseless. Eating is almost painful. But I managed to get it all down in the end, along with a couple mugs of black coffee. Lena bounces around the camp, cleaning and packing things back on the wagon as though she'd slept the whole night through, though I know she got only as much sleep as I did. Let's go, she says once everything's packed. I bundle up my bedroll painfully and put it on the wagon. Come on, she says, double-checking that everything is tied down tight. You can sleep on the ride. You'll need your energy for round two tonight. She winks at me and climbs aboard the wagon. I follow her with a sigh. And we're off. That night we camp at the edge of the flats, where the earth rises like a dark hand cupping the salt. Here, the land has turned strangely verdant. Grass grows thick and green along the sides of the track. Gnarled yew trees interrupt the low fields, and hares and deer leap through brush, uncaring of our wagon. We're halfway to dawn when Lena and I break from practice. I rest my back against the trunk of one of the trees and look up at the sky. Cass tells me you were quite the accomplished bullet catcher, before you had the kid. Hard to believe? Not really. Your forms are sloppy, but that's often the case when someone has talent. Lobo's voice floats through my head, and I smile. What is it? Lobo once told me that, because I was young, I had promise. Like it was the only reason I had a chance of being a half-decent bullet catcher. Like having promise is a default of anyone under a certain age. It is. So what happens when you get older? Lena takes a seat beside me and gazes up at the stars. Well, if you're very lucky and you've worked very hard, by the time you get older, most of that promise has turned into something resembling a fully formed human being. But even then, when you think you've done all the growing up you need to, there is always more to do, always ways to better ourselves, even when you've become an old goat like Cass or myself. Cass seems to think I can be the difference in this fight over Watertown. She's wrong. No one makes a difference. Not by themselves. History makes heroes out of people who have accomplished extraordinary things, but gives short shrift to everyone who helped them get there, or even those who stood beside them in the fight. So we look at these people as though they were superhuman, and we think, I can't possibly do that. The truth is you can if you try hard enough, but also, and probably more importantly, have the right people around you when the time comes. I lean back and gaze up at the stars again, a great black bowl of the night sky spinning overhead. When the time comes, Emma, you won't be alone. We'll be there with you. Long before we catch sight of the ocean, we can hear it. The waves crashing along the shore, first very quietly, but louder and louder as we pass over each rise and bluff along the road to Half Moon. The road rises to a cliff up ahead, where there stands a lone house. There's a light on inside and smoke rising from the chimney. Out on the porch, a hound dog lazes in the glimmering afternoon light. Beyond the house, extending from the bottom of the cliff, is a vast plain of blue, peaked here and there with gray and white, like small pointed teeth. What's that? I ask, pointing. That's the ocean, of course, Cass says. 
I stick my head out the window to get a better look. And then it hits me. All that space? It's water. It seems most of my life has been defined in one way or another by a lack of it. No wonder I hadn't recognized it. How could I have imagined anything like an ocean? I had read the word, heard descriptions, but to see it for myself, it seems utterly alien and beautiful. As we approach the house, a man comes out and waves at us. By the time we pull up, he's waiting for us with a shotgun in his hand and his hound dog healing obediently beside him. What's your business in Half Moon? He asks sleepily. Visiting family, Lena says cheerily. The man spits on the ground like he doesn't believe us, but there is no air of menace coming off him. The gun, the dog, the spitting, they're all just part of the process. The man lifts a shotgun and rests the barrel on the window frame and peers into the carriage, examining each of us inside. When he sees the creature, he seems to relax and lowers his gun. Very well, he says. But if I hear any hollering or shooting from down there, the nearest gunslinger for it is just up the coast. And it wouldn't take much for me to ride up there and bring down a posse to deal with anyone getting up to no good in my town. You hear? Cass nods. Loud and clear. We descend the narrow trail down the cliff face to the beach below, where Half Moon sits, built on the sand in a crescent-shaped bay. The town stretches along the water, ending at a point far out on a peninsula where there stands a tower with a light rotating around the top. I hold the creature up to the window as we rumble down the path, and we stare awestruck at the sight of the ocean. The creature reaches out its small hands and grasps at the air, as though trying to touch the water. The air in Half Moon smells of salt and decay. The town below the cliff is dark, lit only by pale lanterns strung across the boardwalks that form the long, narrow grid of streets, spanning the sandy beach and extending far out into the water. Boats bob up and down, lashed to the piers. A few more boats, only dark splotches in the evening light, sit out on the bay, their cabins lit by lanterns. When we arrive at the bottom of the cliff, a tired-looking man directs us to park the wagon at a nearby stable. We pay the woman there to feed and take care of the horses and make our way into town. It's too late to look for the bullet catcher tonight. No sooner have we dragged ourselves to our room at the local inn than Cass and Nico flop onto the bed. I'm ready for sleep, too, but before I have a chance, Lena tells me to meet her outside for another round of training. I have the baby to take care of, and those two are useless, I say, pointing at Nico and Cass, already asleep. Bring the child with you. It'll be a good reminder of what you're fighting for. I follow Lena down to the beach. The creature babbles senselessly against my chest. The moon has turned the water into a silver mirror. The air is heavy and wet. Every few seconds, a light from the tower, far off on the peninsula, turns toward the shore and bathes us in bright electric light. Behind us, the faint jangling of a piano and drunken voices singing off-key fade in the heavy air. The beach is deserted, save for the upturned hulls of the small boats lining the sand. I run my hand along the splintery wood. What would it be like to be out on the water, to be surrounded by it completely? Taking off my shoes, I walk along the edge of the water, letting it lap at my feet when the tide comes in. Every time it touches me, it's like electricity going through my body, from my toes to the top of my head. Maybe we make it a short one tonight, I tell Lena. 
thinking maybe the creature and I can do some exploring by ourselves along the beach. It's when we want to stop that we must press on, she says. What, is that from your good book? I sneer. It's in a lot of good books, she says, smiling. We train until deep into the night. The creature remains strapped to my chest, sound asleep. And when finally I can't go any longer, I sit in the sand and look out at the water, my arms and legs smarting. Lena stands over me. What? Unstrap the child. I'm going to shoot at you. I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. We will find out just how ready you are. Come on, get to your feet. Carefully, I untangle the creature from around my body and make a little bed on the sand using the wrappings for it. We march a safe distance away while keeping it within sight. When you are dodging the bullet, I want you to think of your child, Lena says. I want you to know that if you fail, your child will die. I don't want to do that. I know. She produces the gun and counts out the space between us. I take a deep breath and signal that I'm ready, and she raises the gun and pulls the trigger. An image of the creature flashes in front of my eyes, covered in blood, its face pale, its lips frozen and blue. The bullet burns as it grazes past my leg. Dropping to a knee, I grasp my leg where I was hit, feeling the warm blood oozing up from the shallow wound. Lena comes over and hands me a bandage from her kit. And this is for your tears, she says, pulling out a handkerchief. I hadn't even realized I was crying, but I can't stop. I keep picturing the creature bloody and dead. Lena brings the creature over to me and deposits it in my arms. I hold the creature so tight that it wakes and starts to wail, but I can't help it. When I finally calmed down, I hand the kerchief back to Lena. I don't think I can do this. Not anymore. Not with the creature. It's because of that child that you will become great at it again. How? Because now you're fighting for someone other than yourself. And that will make you stronger. You're listening to Bullet Catcher Season 3 by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Bullet Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe, produced by Marco Palmieri, and executive produced by Molly Barton. Performed by Inez del Castillo. Audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Corey Barton. 
Original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi, with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch. Cover art by Christine Barcelona.